If we want to stop him, we must find him. We must find Exegol. I know how to get to Exegol. Tell me. Luke searched for it for a long time. He nearly found it. There are ciphers here I can't read. But he said to get there, you need one of these. A Sith Wayfinder. They're compasses that lead the way to Exegol. To stop what we both know is coming. I need to finish what Luke started. Find Exegol. Find the Emperor. No. I don't want to go without your blessing, but I will. I will. It's what you would do. Welcome, everyone, from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair podcast. This is episode number 394, Planets of the Sequel Trilogy. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Babu Frick to my Captain Kennedy, we've got Carl LeClaire. The droid is ready. Hey, hey. <laughs> I can't do Babu Frick. <laughs> That's that's fine. I gave myself Captain Kennedy, and I'm completely blanking on any of his lines right now. So we're both good. Of course you are. (laughs) Oh Oh my goodness! Good old what a what a combo that would be. That would be with Captain Kennedy. The type of adventures they would get up to. I can't even imagine. I I don't think they could either imagine either. So oh (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness um. Oh, Jason, I'm excited for, for this episode this week. We, this was something we did a while back. We did two weeks in a row where we looked at the the planets from the prequel trilogy and then the original trilogy and looking at just kind of what were the story beats that kind of were wrapped up in the planets themselves. And now that we finally have the sequel trilogy as an, you know, complete, we thought it'd be fun to go back and look at all the planets from the sequel trilogy and how they kind of add to the story that's being told. Exactly. How they kind of assist in telling the story of each trilogy. So um, it's a it's a really neat idea that we we explored a while back. And now Carl's right. We got we got everything for the sequel trilogy so we can do the same here. Yeah. Ah. Now, before before we give the list, I do. I got to admit, though, that this to me is one of the weak points of the sequels is planets. They just don't feel as lived in as the other two trilogies i just feel like they're the planets we went to in both the prequels and the originals had just they they had a more grounded effect um they felt like they had a culture to them they felt like there was um some level of lore to each of the planets um and it's just something i felt generally lacking from the sequels um all of them to be honest 
Um, so I, I don't want to like, I don't mean to start this off in a negative note, but I will say it was a little more difficult to, to kind of compile this list than it was with the other two trilogies. And again, I think that's to me still one of the shortcomings of the sequels is it just didn't do quite as, quite as much with the world building that the previous trilogies had done. Um, so, yeah. you know, I just, I, I think that's they're... worth pointing out just before we even get started. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll agree with you to some extent. Um, I do think there is. Uh, a few exceptions to that, um, definitely, uh, throughout the sequel trilogy. I think there's a, there's a few yeah. places that are pretty well lived in. Absolutely. But I think part of, I think part of why this time around, I think it was a little bit harder because I agree it was a little bit harder, um, was because I don't think the planets mattered as much. Mm, that's a good point. Know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As they did in the other trilogies. I, I don't think the, the locations, were as necessarily in most cases important um, to the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of the different beats and things like that could happen um, without um, without some of these planets being there. It could have been, happened on any play, planet. So, mm-hmm. um, whereas certain story beats in the other trilogies definitely had to take place in certain planets. Like, you know, Mustafar was incredibly important in revenge of the Sith for, yes. for where the duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan happened, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Endor so, being the kind of like organic life giving planet to end the, the, you know, the original trilogy, which is kind of a, you know, perfectly matched to elements of Naboo from the, you know, where the story began. So um, if you, if you've not heard those previous episodes of ours, I would, you know, I, I should have looked up where they were. They were a while ago, to be fair, um, but I'm mm-hmm. sure that there's you can still access them. Um, but those were a lot of fun. And, and now that being said, I'm excited to have this conversation about the sequel planets. I love the challenge of thinking about things in a new way. Um, so I'm excited to talk about them. But I think it's worth worth noting that little caveat before we do. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and I do think that, you know, there are, like I, like I said, there's exceptions and there's some that are, v- some planets and locations that are very important to the story and, and things like that. But I think in general, overall, there's, there's a little less, I don't know if care is the right word, but there's a little less importance placed on the locations in the sequels than there is in George Lucas's trilogy. Yeah. Uh, trilogies, because so, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was all part of his stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. So, well, that being said, before be, before we start the conversation um, kind of in depth here, we did have a, uh, a poll from two weeks ago uh, where where you and I discussed our favorite moments with um, our queen and princess Leia. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, obviously we asked all of you what your favorite Leia moments were. And uh, I think with the holiday weekend and, and just uh, things b- getting busy for folks, we didn't get a tremendous amount of responses to this question, but we did get, we did get several and, and I'm excited to hear what folks had to say, Jason. Yeah, no, we, we had some good ones here uh, to, to put on our favorite Leia moments list. Um, with one vote each, we've got uh, scruffy looking nerf herder. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain, which is the same scene, but two very, very different moments, which I love. So um, <laughs> we got putting the plans in R2, uh, Han and Leia's kiss on the Falcon and Empire, Luke and Leia's final meeting from Last Jedi, Carrie Poppins, you know, <laughs> Leia Poppins, that moment. Um, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, meeting Wicket, uh, Han being frozen in carbonite. Hope, 
from Rogue One. And the scene between Leia and Holdo uh, when she wakes up from her coma. The number one uh, moment, though, with multiple votes, we've got uh, Hut Slayer Leia freeing herself from Jabba the Hutt, killing our corpulent crime boss, which <laughs> I don't think was on either of our lists no, last week. No, it wasn't. So it's so it's so neat when something like that uh, wins in a way where it doesn't even get mentioned on our list. So um, and it, yeah. is, it is a great moment, to be fair. Um, it just yes. wasn't within my top five. Uh, but yeah, right. um, it makes sense, right? That, that there is something very iconic about obviously the look of Leia in that moment, but more than anything, it's the fact that it, you can't chain up Leia. She's going to free herself no matter what sort <laughs> of shackles, literal or figurative you throw on, on Leia, she's going to find a way to use that to break herself free. Um, exactly. so I just think it's, it's, uh, Leia doesn't have a ton to do in Return of the Jedi, um, but this is, I would say, one of, if not the biggest highlight of her in that movie. So yeah, no, it's, kind of, kind it's great. And yeah. um, I'm really glad that it got a nice uh, a nice showing here uh, from our Larians uh, because, you know, it was something that, that got, you know, that wasn't on our list. So I'm really glad uh, a big moment like that was was highlighted by by our listeners. So thank you everyone for weighing in and, and uh, picking that. Cause it's a great moment. Uh, all your moments were great. Um, but yeah, we've got a, we've got a fun new matchup for you at the end of this episode, a little bit, a uh, little bit different. Uh, yeah. So we're going to, we're going to see what people think um, at the end of, of this episode. But Carl, uh, how do we want to, to start in on this today? I think we'll just start with uh, Force Awakens. We'll just go kind of chronologically the planets we get to visit. Um, some of the planets we revisit um, in, in later movies, but we'll just kind of roll with it as we go. Um, but ultimately, right, the sequel trilogy begin, begins on Jakku. Um, and I think what's important to know, at least when we first saw the movie, is it's just another backwater planet, kind of forgotten, kind of, you know, not a very important place. Um, and then we've come to learn, you know, through the aftermath trilogy that this is also Jakku is the planet, uh, where the empire made its last stand and ultimately fell, um, at least for 30 years, <laughs> you know, this is the place that they, they abandoned to the unknown regions from, but, um, well, I was putting the notes together. I thought it was interesting though. Uh, cause I, re- I really liked the aftermath trilogy. I believe you did as well. Um, yes. And, I love that Jakku was also the site where the emperor kept a lot of his special artifacts. And I just found it interesting that this is the place where his own granddaughter ends up getting stranded. Um, yeah. Uh, I just think that's a, a, a neat story beat. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, this, it's, like, hmm? uh, it's like Luke being on Tatooine, which is, you know, Anakin's home planet, but he never went back to see, you know, if that's where he was, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, but yeah, you know, Jakku is, is just kind of this barren land where somebody of tremendous importance, yet a seeming nobody, uh, is, is kind of hiding out. And I think the reason Jakku works for me and right, a lot of people say like, oh, why doesn't, why isn't this just Tatooine? Um, I think it makes sense that it's not Tatooine. Um, and it works being a new planet and 
what's important to me is the fact that it is a desert planet. Like as a, you know, as Star Wars fans, if you've seen the saga up to this point, we know that a desert planet is something special. That there are significant nobodies that come from these desert-like planets. You know, specifically right. Anakin and Luke. So, um, I think it works really well that it's it's something familiar but new, right? Which was kind of the whole trope of the the Force Awakens that we we heard about coming up to the movie, right? This is something familiar but new. And I feel like Jack Hu kind of captures that spirit. Yeah. And I think um and I think part of why it is important and why it actually in my opinion really does work as a location story beat uh for the Force Awakens uh is because it is its whole economy is based around collecting junk and finding the the diamonds in the rough so to speak you know finding something worth something in the midst of of junk and refuse and sand and things like that and that's what we are doing what the force is doing what the resistance is doing as it comes across ray um you know it it, it finds a diamond in the rough. It finds something valuable in the junk. So, and uh, that's the funny thing, of course, is that she doesn't feel like she wants to be found. You know, it's which is something that the desert does very well on Jakku. Hmm. Is it hides what it what it takes? You know, there was dozens of star cruisers and ships and weapons that fell out of the sky during the final battle that, uh, over Jakku. Um, if you read the aftermath trilogy uh, or listen to it and they're still digging things out and trying to find pieces that are intact. Um, you know, so it's, it's, and this is 30 years later almost. So it's, it's not it, it's it hides its secrets and Ray still wants to go back and sort of hide away. So I, I do think in a, this planet, Jakku is really one of the best uses of uh, location storytelling in the entire sequel trilogy. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely something I think that really works for me. And I, I don't mind that it's not Tatooine. And I think it, it, it's appropriate that it's not Tatooine because Tatooine is where the Skywalkers are from. Right. And where she has to get to yeah. by the end of the story. That's a great point. Yeah. So um yeah, for sure. And and Ray's desire to constantly go back, right? Finn even points out, you know, why does everybody want to go back to Jakku? <laughs> she wants to go back to what's familiar. She wants to go back to what's comfortable. And I think in a very uh I don't know if it was intended or not, but kind of in a meta way, that is a it's a way of speaking to Star Wars fandom at the time too. We wanted something kind of familiar initially, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so Jakku provides that it's some, it is new, but it is familiar. And the thing exactly. that, the thing that tells you very starkly in the movie that this is a new planet is that beautiful shot of Ray riding her speeder back home to her ATAT, uh, where you see just the one sun setting, right? Like it's very clear that this is not Tatooine. Um, right. but this is, I would say of the entire sequel trilogy, it's the most lived in planet we get. Um, just in those brief scenes of watching Ray at her home, watching her in the desert, watching her go about her daily life, it gives you a sense of what happens on this planet, the type of life that exists there. Um, so yeah, Jakku is a great place to start the story. Yeah, indeed. Um, are we we're, are we getting off Jakku? We are getting off Jakku. Yeah, and we're gonna head. Be happier. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and we're going to head to the, the lush forests of Takadana, um, which I, I love th- yeah, I, I think uh, Ray's comment, I never thought there was so much green in all the galaxy, kind of captures what Takadana represents at this point of the story. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of this oasis, and it's rich with life and relaxation. It's a planet devoted to getting away, putting your feet up, and just enjoying the life that exists around you. Um, it reminds me of like a beautiful garden. Right. Uh, the point of a garden is to just simply go and relax. It, you know, honestly, Takadana in this way kind of reminded me of that Airbnb you and I stayed at the first time we went to San Francisco together. We, you know, that woman yeah. had that beautiful backyard garden that we literally put our, you know, put our feet up every night back there and just enjoyed a glass of wine. And, you know, there was some there was, it, there was this oasis feeling to it. And I feel like that's what Takadana represents in the story. It becomes this point where everybody's on the run. You know, uh, Ray and Finn are on the run and then they bump into Han and Chewie who are also on the run and they finally mm-hmm. go to this this place of respite, um, this place of rest. Yeah, it is an oasis. And that is really what Maz's ca- castle there on Takadana is is used for. Um, and it's, you know, it works well from a storytelling perspective because as an oasis, it is green, which is a complete opposite of anything Ray is accustomed to. Um and so it really kind of gives her this this look of oh, oh there is so much more out here that I never expected, um, and it really kind of starts opening her eyes to what is outside of her own perspective and outside of her own perceived uh, existence. I won't say journey because I don't think she thought she was on a journey, uh, but now she is, mm. and this is sort of the first stop. This is the waypoint, the rest stop. Um, as she has left Jakku for the first time. It's the first place where she actually has time to sit down and think about what's happened. Mm. Uh, and and Maz challenges everything that she has uh, thought up to this point by trying to, you know, help provide a new direction. And and that all happens at this, this oasis, which, of course, then gets invaded. Um, the oasis is the relaxation of the oasis is shattered when Kylo and the first order show up. So, yeah. Yeah. All too true. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. And, and, you know, I mean, specifically with it being the furthering of Ray's journey, that's, I love the way you basically put it right. It's, this is her crossing of the threshold, right? It's, it's Luke Mm -hmm. entering the cantina. Um, this is her entering into something, even more starkly different from her every day. Um, yeah. Both with looks and with circumstance. So, right. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Um, well, we kind of make our way then um, to Dakar. So after all of their adventures on Takadana, and like you said, the first order invades and destroys that space. Right. Uh, again, yeah. just a, a very kind of very simple way of pointing out this is the first order is just like the empire. It disrupts peace, right? Yeah. Tekadana was a space of peace and comfort oasis, and they came in and just obliterated that. Right. Um, so now we go to Dakar and Dakar is this really hidden place and it's kind of buried into the ground. Right. When we see them down in the base, there's kind of roots everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. from tree roots. And to me, it's kind of neat because it's, it's like this, the resistance is the seed that's that's hiding away there, but it's growing. 
right? Um, well, and, it, and not only is the the base on Dakar hidden, but the planet is kind of hidden behind this this large ring of asteroids. Yeah, you know, it it, it almost seems a bit buried in the system, you know, as a planet itself. So it is kind of a hidden place. Um, so yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, it has a, it has a very light Yavin four feel to it. The inside of the base, much more so, um, just kind of very stony, but also very rooty. (laughs) Um, and I just like that, like this idea that once again, it's a place of, of, of hiding, but it's not hiding to stay away forever, but it's hiding with the intent to grow into something more. Right. That's why I like the fact that it's, it's buried with the roots. It's, 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 it's building its life here and it will emerge to be something more and it's hope is anyway. Yeah. No. And it, and it's, it, I don't have too much more to say about it um, because we don't really explore that much of it um, other than just inside, you know, some of the base, but um, it is just looking at some of the, the images here of it, it does kind of seem to be hidden away. It seems like there might even be less stars out in this area of space. Um, you know, like it's, it's way out there and hidden and waiting for the moment, uh, to release what it is hiding back into the galaxy. So, um, it's a good little area, not something that, you know, I don't have much say about because we are only there a few times, uh, with any sort of significance, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll to Starkiller base though next, right? Yes. Yes. Off to Starkiller base. <laughs> Oof. Um, and it's interesting. Rumored, rumored to be the remnants of Ilum. <laughs> it's it's been confirmed that it's Ilum. I can't remember oh, it, where, um, but it has been confirmed. I I feel like it's in one of the. It might have been the like technical Rise of Skywalker journal, or you know how they come out with those. Um, I don't remember what those books are called, but you know what I'm talking about. Kind of the the technical journals that have come out with each movie. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty yeah. sure it's in that that it's confirmed that it was on Ilum. Okay. Um. But yeah, you know, Starkiller Base is a very stark place as well, right? I mean, it, it's cold and snowy, um, you know, and it's, it's of course, where the villains go. They're cold and heartless. Um, and of course, that's where they are. That's where they are hiding out in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that it's now been confirmed that it is, in fact, Ilum, again, similar to kind of a point you were making with Takadana, Jason, right? That it shows what the First Order does when it shows up to a place to a place it perverts it it changes it into something for its own use yeah yeah it, it and it's it's not a a good thing it 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 is scarred literally scarred across the the center of the planet um and that is what the first order does uh when it takes over is it scars things it it destroys it rips things apart um and uh, a, a place that used to be full of wonder and mystery is now cold and heartless. The heart has been ripped out of Ilum uh, and turned into Starkiller Base. Um, yeah. To to be used as a weapon. Right. So, in a very literal sense, that is what has happened to the planet, and it is it is a essentially a dead husk in space. By the time the First Order is done with it. Um, it is it is cold, it is merciless, and it is heartless and dead. Yeah. Yeah. And 
and interesting to point out that Star Killer gets all of its power as well from uh, draining other stars. Right, it drains their energy, which you can imagine if those stars also have planets around them kills those planets inadvertently too right you, you take a star away from a habitable planet well it's kind of screwed <laughs> um yeah. so it's interesting though that when the resistance finally comes and has their way there they turn it back into a source of life right it it the husk of the planet as you put it um ceases to be and instead is transformed into a life-giving star um yeah so yeah um yeah. uh it reminds me of one of the things I really loved in the Ahsoka novel. Um, oh yeah. my gosh, why am I blanking on the author? Uh, E.K. Johnston. E.K. Johnston. I love you know the way the Empire is described on the on the planet Ahsoka is on. Is they come in? The, it's a farming planet and essentially just destroy the the environment there by again using it for their own means. You know by ramping up production and paying no heed to the the actual cycle of life there and they just destroy it um I, that gave me a stronger appreciation for what they did with star killer base yeah and and we we get a sneak peek you know at what ends up happening to ilum in that novel too because she goes there to try and find lightsaber crystals and she sees yeah uh, she sees the construction and the mining and the the complete uh I won't say complete destruction of the planet, but uh, because that takes time, but the, the beginning stages of the destruction of this sacred uh, planet to them. And uh, so then of course that is ultimately fulfilled in what we see in star killer base and the, in uh, force awakens. So, yeah. Um, well, um, the last place we go in force awakens is Octo. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it'll be interesting because we'll obviously talk more about this when when we start talking about Last Jedi here in a few minutes. But um, I, w- I would say it represents something different in, in Force Awakens because we just get a hint of it. And to me, in Force Awakens, Octo, at the end of this part of our story is we've kind of reached our promised land. Um, and I've always loved those moments of watching Rey start up the steps with the start of the Jedi Steps music playing. And mm-hmm. to me, it's it, this is a ray. This is ray ascending into the heavens to meet the to the, the meet the divine one in Luke Skywalker, right? And I don't mean that he's actually divine, um, but right. Uh, and so Octo does kind of represent this this promised land, and it once again, it's something very organic. It's a world dominated by oceans and green. You know, again, kind of an inverse of Jakku, um, right? So where Ray's journey leads her to is to a place of of very ardent life. Um, and, and it represents this place of promise. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. Cause I didn't really look at it that way that much. Um, yes, it, it is the home place of the first Jedi temple, which means that it is definitely teeming with life and, and a, a nexus for a, a peaceful existence where a Jedi could sit and meditate and, and start a new order. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So, uh, it definitely is all of that, but, what I think struck me the most in um, Force Awakens and probably a little bit more so in The Last Jedi about Octo is the fact that we are on an island. Mm. Just an island in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and it just shows us how Luke has isolated himself mm. from everyone. So, um, 
and it I, I I think it's sort of that message is in the Force Awakens a little bit, um, but it's it's fleshed out in the Last Jedi. You know how isolated this place is, and how that is what Luke has done. It kind of gives us the hints of it while looking beautiful and serene and meditative uh, and hopeful because of the bright sunshine and the green colors and the sun shining off the waves of the ocean and things like that. Uh, It is all that in the rise of Skywalker, not the rise of Skywalker, um, the, the force awakens. Uh, But there is hints at what it's going to become. And, and it really kind of is uh, this isolated place. That's a great point. Yeah. I, I didn't think of that at all. And I think like that's definitely the case very strongly so with um, Last Jedi. But I think when we get there in Force Awakens, we're getting there with Rey, right? So I was just thinking about from kind of her perspective. I'm not trying to say you're wrong and that that's not there. And of course, now we can now read to it retrospectively because we have the next two movies. Um, right. But to me, like when you just watch Force Awakens, we go there with Rey and Rey goes there hoping to find Luke and she finally does. Right. So to me, it's all about the promise there. But then I feel like when we settle into it, which we're about to in last Jedi, Mm -hmm. it's very much, it's very clear that it's the Island and that's, what's so important to, to how it's being used. All right. Well, let's move into last Jedi, which has the least amount of planets in the sequel trilogy and only two new planets in the sequel trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, we're going to start here on Dakar Again, a very brief amount of time, even more brief than when we were there in Force Awakens. Um, but kind of as the opening crawl alludes to, their secret is out, right? This place of yeah. this place they were hiding where they were underground has been finally found out by the First Order. Um, so now it just becomes a place they need to get out of. It's no longer a safe place to be. So, um, right, it's, it's, it's just a place they need to get out of. <laughs> so yeah. um, I don't really have much more to say about it. No, I don't either. Uh, there, it, it, the the secret. You're right. The secret is out, and there's there's just a all it is is a place to escape from here in the Last Jedi. So, yeah. which um, I, I guess I guess the way that plays out for the story is what was their safe place, what was the place where they were growing, has now been eradicated. Right. True. So it yeah. kind of it forces them to now figure out how to be the resistance on the run. So it does it does play out in that way. They don't have a a safe uh, dug in place anymore. Now, now home base, if you will, is a small fleet of ships traveling through hyperspace. Right. So it's just, it's a different feel. Um, It's a different kind of uh, safety. It's not quite as safe. So I guess that's pretty important, I guess. So it is, they, they've had a, a secure, um, a secure location, a, a, a safe haven. Uh, that they've been able to formulate plans and strike, you know, blows against the first order from for a while, and now now they don't have that anymore. It, it is completely blown apart underneath them, and they are forced to uh, be on the run, become you know a, a you know wander the galaxy in a bunch of you know in a fleet now. So, um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, now we go back to another planet um, we've, we were introduced to in, in Force Awakens, which is Octo. And we spend, obviously, a lot more time here. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was thinking of with here, and, 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 and I mean, I, I love the point you were just making in Force Awakens, so I'll obviously let you make more of that point. Um, but what I was thinking of, again, from the perspective of Ray is it's a place that has kind of turbulent waters. There's a lot of rain here. Um, to me, uh, Octo starts to also represent uh, some of Ray's own turmoil that's going on as she's trying to figure out who she is. Um, the planet itself kind of mirrors um, some of her emotional um, journey. Um, and it's also it's a place that's rooted in the past, right? It's the sacred site of the of the last Jedi. Um, or excuse me, of the first Jedi. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Octo represents this this place of, it's a seat of wisdom, if you will, especially that sacred tree, which was the, the, the heart of the first Jedi temple, right? It's this place where we go in the story hoping for answers. We come here thinking this place, it's, it's chock full of wisdom. It's stood for thousands of years. It's got to have a lot to offer us, but it falls short yeah. of that. It's instead it's it's a place that's essentially abandoned. There are really no Jedi here anymore. Luke almost doesn't consider himself barely one, right? I mean, he does. He does call himself the last Jedi, but um, right. It's it's this place that he's kind of you know, and again we learned this through um, ancillary material, but we know that all of those original Jedi texts he found all of them and brought them back there. Apparently, they weren't all there. So Luke kind of had his own side adventures. And again, I'd love to get more. I'd love to get those stories. Um, but he brings them all there, right? He brings all the wisdom of the Jedi to this place. So, right, you have the hope of Rey of like, oh my goodness, it's all here. I can't wait to learn from this. But then you have the fact that Luke brought it there to isolate it so that it could die. Yeah, it, it, it's almost become a mausoleum. Yeah. Uh, for for Luke. Uh uh, before I get into to, to Luke's side of things, I want to touch on some of Ray uh, because you're right; it does it does really uh, mirror her own inner turmoil and uh, and and really reacts to the struggles that she's going to. However, it's in addition to that, it is it is also the complete opposite type of weather that she's used to from Jakku. So it is not only is it expressing her own inner turmoil, but it's doing it in a way that is uncomfortable for her. Mm. That uh, doesn't make sense to her, uh, you know, cause she sits there, you know, under the Falcon with her hand out, you know, feeling the rain fall uh, in sort of wonder and amazement. It doesn't make sense. It's amazing. It's wonderful, but it doesn't really make sense to her as to, to, you know, how and why this is all happening. Um, but yeah, it, it's a it's a really good point that, that that is sort of her internal turmoil is expressed through the weather and the the environment around her. And for Luke, uh, like I was touching on with uh, the Force Awakens, it is this island. It is his isolation. It is his seclusion that he has um, committed for himself. There's nothing within. Nothing of any substance with as far as the eye can see around him. You know, not only did he come to Octo to find the first Jedi temple, but he came to a place that doesn't even have any, you know, significant landmass nearby. You know, Probably as far very, as he can see. Yeah, very limited so, cell service, I imagine, as well. I, I, I assume, you know, yeah. the, the internet, you know, is is barely functional satellite internet so yeah, it's, it doesn't even um, have dial up <laughs> no oh it's it's uh. 
<laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then it also is, you know, has become this sort of mausoleum for Luke and in his mind, the Jedi as a mm. whole, that this is where he has brought everything to reside, to, to fade away, to become a, you know, to quote another George Lucas property, uh, it becomes a museum. Uh, you know, it belongs in a museum. Uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones. Um, but, you know, it, it, it has sort of become this, this, this pilgrimage place for Luke to, but he doesn't share that with anybody, you know, and it, and it was never designed to be that way. So it is just a very interesting, interesting place because not only is it the, the inner turmoil of Ray, but it is also the prison that Luke has constructed for himself. Um, Yeah. Which I also find it interesting because he is from Tatooine that he's, Built a prison on a place that is wet and green. Sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me want to know more about the caretakers. Um, those mm. are, you know, kind of like we were saying at the top of the episode, Jason, you know, again, one of the shortcomings of the sequels is that they don't do a tremendous amount of world building. Um, but I think there are a few places that, that open those possibilities. And I think Octo specifically with the caretakers is, is one of them. Um, you know, Luke tells us that they've, they've been there for generations, keeping up the Jedi structures, right? They don't, they're not Jedi. The Jedi have long been gone from there, but they still just carry on that tradition. Um, and they're going to carry it on long after Luke's gone. Right. Um, and you know, they're not selling brochures to come tour the place, right? They almost seem to be annoyed by tourists. Look at how they treat Ray. (laughs) Um, but I would just uh, – I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. I apologize. But I would just love to hear uh, more stories about the caretakers. Like where did they come from? Uh, you know, uh, just – I want. I mean they're space nuns. Uh, I love nuns. They're cool. <laughs> like I want to know more about them. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean what did they uh, – Rain. you know, again, I, I don't know that we'll ever get post Rise of Skywalker – stories anytime soon um i certainly don't want any movies but i would love some post rise of skywalker novels um and i would love to see ray go back there and have some sort of discourse with the uh with the caretakers i mean again one of the coolest deleted scenes from last jedi to me is that moment when she you know runs down thinking that they're being invaded by pirates and they're having this big party (laughs) and they just want her to wave the lightsaber around some more and they cheer and stuff it's so great like um yeah, so I'd, I'd love to I'd love to get more of their story and 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 why that why that place is so special to them. Yeah, and and why they have committed themselves yeah. to taking care of it. You know what what caused them to do this? You know, is it because of a connection to the Force? Is it because of something that the Jedi did or requested when they left the planet? Um, you know what 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 is that? Because They've been taking care of this place, it, it seems, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know? So, why? That's yeah. a good question. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, you know. We're, we're, we're taking a little side tangent, but I, I would love to know. So, <laughs> <laughs> hmm? 
Great care must be taken. Yoda referencing caretakers. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. That is exactly what he is doing um, in Revenge of the Sith. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh my well, we, we go from the, the lush, uh, isolated wilderness. Of and spiritual-like hub of, of a Star Wars story to something quite different. Oh, indeed. Um, it, it is a flashy city with a seedy underbelly uh, on a desert world. The desert of uh, world is Katonica, but of course we're going to Canto Bight, and that's what really we're focusing on it's here. It's a right? desert it's world? Canto I didn't know that. It is. You see it from space. Um, does, well, there's a waterfall, and then they're in like a grassy pretty field. Sure, pretty sure it's an oasis that they've also oh. uh, artificially maintained. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. I think, okay. I think. All right. I didn't I'm again, I'm sure that information's out there. Um I didn't I just assumed it was just like a relatively lush planet that they made even prettier. So Well, I mean, at least this area is is relatively lush. Um sure. but the the planet as a whole is is kind of a of a dust ball. If you see it, you you'll see it from space, but uh this area is, is lush because it does have the uh, you know, the beach and the the river that you know with the waterfall that goes into the ocean um, yeah. and things like that so this it might just be a sort of a verdant valley in the desert um because that's mm. a that's definitely a thing i've seen um you know living in arizona but yes <laughs> um but yeah. cantonica though it's it's it i i call it the las vegas of star wars um, yeah that's essentially what it is right it's uh it's this place for the super rich to come and play you know oh. and only the super rich can enjoy it but mm-hmm. um, going with what you were just, I, I didn't realize that it was probably mostly a desert planet. Um, I, I love that point because I was also in my own notes. I wrote that this place is ultimately a facade, right? The beauty yeah. is built on the backs of those hidden in the stables, right? The the actual workers who put in all the work, they're kept in the, the dungeons and the dingy spots. But all the pretty places, it's just a facade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Cantonica, it, it it kind of, I think what, Ryan Johnson was trying to do at this part of the story and kind of in the midst of his story here is, is kind of showcase um, what, what kind of new enemies exist both in the star Wars world and in our own world. And it's, it's ultimately, you know um, it's just people that love money, right? I mean, the empire and the first order, both are obsessed with power, but Cantonica is full of a different kind of villain. It's the kind of villain that just wants money and they'll do whatever it takes to get it. And this is, this is their lush playground. Oh yeah, it it is just definitely their playground where they go to kick back, relax, spend their lavish wealth that they will never ever run out of because they're so filthy rich, and of course behind the scenes plot against you know plot ways to make even more money, money, money. Right. Let's ensure so. that the war goes on because we'll keep getting rich. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah. So it, I, I do like that you that you call it a facade it, because it is. It is. It's glitz and glamour that hides the dark underbelly of all of it, and the darkest people involved are the ones that look the prettiest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, just specifically in the story, I just I love the way that Rose and Finn play off each other, right? Because Finn. Finn just sees it for the facade. Like, this place is great. I don't get what's your problem, <laughs> you know? But Rose immediately says, look closer, because she she comes from a place like Cantonica, where, you know, 
she was oppressed so that other people could live a more lavish life. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that is a, that's also one of the enemies of the resistance, you know, um, is, is, and I think just in a very simple way, you know, um, desiring a lush life just for that's for the sake of having a lush life usually makes you a pretty shallow person, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. so Cantonica is not such a great place as Finn no. quickly learns. Yeah. Canto Bight is a casino city, uh, in a desert world, you know, in the casino city, if you've been to casinos, they are very good at making something out of nothing and making it look really pretty. So, as you as you talk, I'm actually looking up Cantonic. It is a desert planet. Okay, confirmed on Wikipedia. I will, but you're right. I'm looking at this picture from space. It definitely looks like a desert. So that makes it even more interesting, Jason. That, um, right. Uh, Jakku yeah. could have a have a Canto bite, but it certainly doesn't because it's just not where po- people chose to make a make a fun yeah. playground. I mean, it's it's it is like Las Vegas. Las yeah. Vegas is in the middle of the New Mexico, uh, the the yeah. um, uh, Nevada desert. Nevada desert. Yeah, and there's it is hot. It is gross um, out there. Uh, you know, there shouldn't be. You know, you, you walk down the strip and it's lush and verdant and beautiful and there's fountains and everything, but it's all artificial. Mm-hmm. It's maintained, you know, through the, you know, irrigation and, you know, daily watering and, and maintaining and, you know, shipping in water sometimes if it, the drought is bad enough, you know, things like that. So it's, it is a facade, you know, in the middle of the Nevada desert, which that's you know, makes sense that he'd do the same kind of thing yeah. uh, here with Tonica and Canto Bite. So, but. yeah. Um, well, we have one last planet to visit from from Last Jedi, another sea planet, and that's the planet of Crate. Mm, indeed. And Crate is a great planet, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? It's a, a it's a, it's a planet of salt um, and salt. Mineral and crystal. Yes. Um, and there's something to me, there's something beautiful about crate, you know, and it's not a facade. Like, you know, when you think of Cantabite, um, but salt, right. The whole point of salt, salt preserves things and makes them sweeter. Well, not sweeter, tastier, at least. I mean, I love salt. I mean, whew, my goodness, I have heart disease, so I got to be careful. But like, I'm always eating salt. Um, oh, man. You, you should see Carl with the French fries when we go to McDonald's. Oh, my um, goodness. I just, I'm never satisfied with the amount that's on there. <laughs> um, my, my partner always says that I make the best scrambled eggs. And I was like, yeah, well, do you see the amount of salt I put in there? <laughs> um but right, but but salt, right? It's it's something that you know. I mean, thinking obviously from our own worldview here, salt was used for you know hundreds of years to preserve things that were shipped over the seas, right? Like if you had a bunch of meat, you threw it in salt because you didn't have refrigeration. Um, so salt helped preserve things, but also made them more flavorful. And I think it's yeah. really interesting that the last place we go here is we. It seems like all hope is lost, right? We just see the resistance getting. They get chased off to car. They're even tracked through light speed. They, you know, they finally think they found this safe haven and that's blown up immediately, right? That the news is out, but this is this place that, um, it's going to preserve them. It's going to make them, it's going to make them something even better. 
Um, yeah. And and I love the the aesthetic of you know the fact that right under <clears throat> right under the surface of that salt is this kind of bright crimson red planet you know that just mirrors the look of blood and once again it it shows us that this place will be a place of great sacrifice um specifically for luke he's going to go there to make a big sacrifice um so that our story can be preserved um and you know the resistance is is kind of once again buried in these caves but they're these caves of crystal and and beauty and it's this place they're going to come out of just far more rich. Um, so yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think about crate? I, I, I do think that is a great point because salt is, it is a preserving agent. Uh, yes. It, it also flavors and makes things more tasty, but uh, it is, you know, especially in our own history and it is a primarily used as a preserving agent. And that is what happens here. The resistance is preserved during this battle because of the sacrifice of Luke Skywalker. And that is why, of course, it is red um, underneath. But I do love the fact, just from an aesthetic look, that, you know, uh, just below the surface, it is full of crystals. And it, it reminds me of a geode. You know, it's, you know, just this boring, unimaginative rock on the outside. But the minute you crack it open, it's just beautiful and spectacular and breathtaking. And that is what the the preservative and the sacrifice of crate and luke skywalker allows to birth uh out of the escape of the resistance is something beautiful and spectacular um so i i think ryan johnson was definitely onto something with crate yeah uh, he definitely had a lot of a lot of additional meaning uh with with this planet Mm, yeah, I can just imagine myself on crate with like a bunch of potatoes, just rolling them across the ground, and then eating them raw. Like that's all I want. I love a salty potato, <laughs> so it doesn't need to be cooked. I'm just gonna roll it on the ground and eat it. Um, so crate's a great place for me. Um, not a great, not a great place for my uh, my blood pressure, but that's all right. <laughs> Good. At, yeah. That, well, we'll, 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 we'll keep an eye on you, Carl. Great. Um, Perfect. Make sure you don't, you don't eat too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> Just enough. Um. Oh my goodness. But real quick, worth noting though, that where, where the story ends for last Friday, though, we do just very briefly go back to the stables of Canto bite. And um, I just think it's interesting to point out that what Luke did there the the way that the resistance was preserved, the way that his legend was not only preserved but sweetened on crate reaches a planet and reaches even the stables of Cantobite, right? You yeah. would think of all places where they don't want that story to get out, right? They're probably doing everything they can to keep that story away from in any sort of – they don't want to incite anything from their, their stable boys, you know, the children and right. I'm sure the adults as well. And yet – and what yes. was preserved, what was sweetened there on crate reaches even the stables of Cantabite. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah. It's really good. So. Um, so we go into the last of the sequel trilogy films here with Rise of Skywalker, which Jason has a record number eight Star Wars planets. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I will say, so... 
the the kind part of me says, oh, what fun. The less kind part of me says is, holy crap, that movie was a little too busy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which I think I think both can be true at the same time. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I guess I wonder if um, Revenge of the Sith might have had I forget how many because they right. went to a bunch of places during Order of Sixty Six. That's true. So. That's right. Yeah. So you, that might have just as much or more. Um, yeah. Let's well, let's but real I, quick, Jason. Let's 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 quiz ourselves. Where are we going, Revenge of the Sith? We're going to take a quick detour. Back, all right. Back. So moves. we got Coruscant. Coruscant. Uh, Utapau. Utapau. Mustafar. Mustaf- uh, Naboo at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've got in Order sixty six. Oh, we we get Kashyyyk as Kashyyyk, well. Yep. Um, Polis Masa. It, although it's an Polis asteroid, Masa. I don't know if you want to count it, but we could. You can. Yeah. Uh, then we've got um, Mygito, Felucia, Silicomai, uh, Cato Nemoidia, and I think that's it during Order sixty six. Oh, and we go to Tatooine again. So eleven. Oh, yeah. yeah. So eleven planets in and Re- 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 Revenge of the Sith. So all right. Yeah. So to be fair, that takes the cake for most Star Wars planets. Yes. But those those are all planets in um, almost like a montage. Although I guess yes. you could say that even you know I mean you can add a few more planets technically to. I I didn't put in Endor, Jakku, or or Bespin right because you get the three of those in the closing. Right. Montage. I didn't. I didn't count those at all. Um, no. I didn't even think to. So I guess technically there's eleven in this one too. So my God, <laughs> we're just hopping the galaxy. Yeah. It appears. Yeah. Well, and in a lot of ways, Jason, I think it makes sense that both those movies have a lot because um, yeah. I, I, I'll say this with with this now being you know quite a bit removed, almost a year removed, not quite, but almost a year removed from the entirety of the sequel trilogy. The way I almost see the three trilogies is the first trilogy is the big galactic story that falls apart. The middle, the middle trilogy is about a very personal story that fixes that. And then our final trilogy is once again, restoring the whole of the galaxy. Um, so I actually see a lot more parallels between the sequels and the prequels than anything else. I do too. So, I and, do too. I, and I credit a lot of that to rise of Skywalker, to be honest. Um, why, you know, I, once again, I'll say it again, JJ gets way too much crap and I, and I love what he tried to do with this movie, even if it wasn't perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think he did his best to try to wrap up this grand scale of a, of a, of a, of a story. So, so let's, so let's look at how he did that with the planets. (laughs) Um, so we start on Mustafar, um, which is never explicitly stated. Right. And I think, um, a lot of people were wondering, like, was that Mustafar? Wasn't it? Because again, when you go to the, that, that exterior shot of the planet of the star destroyers or excuse me, the star destroyers in orbit and the tie fighters. To me, it's very clearly Mustafar, right? Like we've seen that image, um, in revenge of the Sith, not to mention several clone wars episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. but once you go to the planet, you're like, wait a minute, why are there trees? (laughs) Right. Um, and I know that that's explained, I think invader immortal or something. Um, but, uh, all that aside, it's really neat to me that we return to Mustafar at the start of this movie because we're returning to where um, we're returning to the ashes of where the sky, of of the chosen one fell, of the first Skywalker, mm-hmm. you know, the first major Skywalker kind of fell from grace. Um, so we're returning to the ashes of this old story that has kind of risen up again, right? We hear that Palpatine could be back, um, so we we go back to one of the most devastating things that's ever happened. 
Um, and Mustafar is a very savage planet. It's a very violent planet. And it's cool that we get to see Kylo being a savage at the beginning of this movie. I, I love this. I mean, it's obviously very brief and we were supposed to get a lot more. A lot of it was cut and I really wish they'd give us the deleted scenes. But, um, you know, the savagery of Mustafar mirrors the savagery of Kylo. But what's also interesting is Mustafar has become a bit more of a tame planet, right? We see that with the trees. We don't see lava anywhere to be, to be fair, not at least in these shots. And Kylo himself, while he's a savage villain at this point, he's also a much calmer villain than he's been in the previous movies. Yeah. And you know, of course it's entirely possible. This is just a completely other part of the planet than what we were at in revenge of the Sith. Um, But yeah, it has, you know, at least for the storytelling perspective, we are at a place that is less volatile um, in this this still barren and ash-ridden world. Um, and Ben Kylo is, you know, while he is more in control of himself, he is still just a complete wrecking ball, bringing death and violence to to this world that has seen so much of it before mm-hmm. you know yeah so that's just a, an interesting point we we see it for just a few minutes you know at most you know mustafar so um it's just a few minutes spent there at most so not too much else i have to say about it but yeah do you have anything else no no, that was it for me too. All um, right. But then we go to what is quickly becoming one of my favorite planets in Star Wars, which is Exegol. I love Exegol. it. Yes. It's, you you love Exegol. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, uh, and it, shocking, I like something dark and mysterious like Dagobah. Um, but wow. it's also, it's also yes. the inverse of Dagobah. Whereas Dagobah is teeming with the living force, this one is teeming with the dying force, <laughs> I guess. Um, but That's Exegol, a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, really quick side note. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I watched Rise of Skywalker with a friend of mine who this is his favorite Star Wars movie now. And it was just, oh, my God, Jason, it was so fun watching it with him. It was like watching Attack of the Clones with you. Um, <laughs> Good. And uh, he made this great point. I'm, I'm Again, sorry for the quick tangent, but I, I, I think it's worth mentioning. He said that in his own head canon, he doesn't care what the official canon says, that all the all the cultists there are just, you know, human beings. Um, that worship the emperor in the Sith cult. He goes, in my mind, they're actually the ghosts of all the dead Sith. And he goes, to me, it's is like where they're banished to. And I'm like, that's really cool. So like when the emperor, the emperor says, yeah. you know, all of them live in me, they're ultimately all around him. But like, whereas the Jedi can, when they die and become one with the force, they transcend the galaxy. The Sith are stuck in this hell. Um, so that's a great, I, I just thought that was a really neat point. And that also leads me to my thought of the reason I really like the look of Exegol is it actually, it reminds me of hell in its truest sense. And it's the sense that we get from Dante's Inferno and, 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 in Inferno, right. We get these, I think there's seven circles of hell or whatever it is. Um, but, yeah. but the, the heart of hell, the very pit of hell is a very cold place. It's something very dead and stone like, um, because mm-hmm. it is completely devoid of life and light and love. Um, and to me, that's what Exegol really is. And everything that happens on Exegol, ultimately, yes, I mean, there's a lot in the atmosphere, but all of the character-driven stuff on Exegol is in this, you have to descend, right? You're going down into the pit. 
and that immediately made me think of the the consistent use of the terminology of pit in the Old Testament and and the Hebrew word um, uh, for like Sheol, the land of the dead. And throughout the book of Psalms, you're always praying to to be released from the pit, which is this place of non-existence. To me, exegol is that place of of non-life. Um, and it's, there's just something so ancient and cool. Like to me, like this is perfect star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, to continue on the Christian analogy, um, hell is the absence of God. Yeah. Uh, and, and exgol in many ways is the absence of anything good. Mm. Uh, and it is, it is barren. It is lifeless. It is dark and cold. Um, it is violent. The atmosphere is violent. Um, so violent that they have to guide the ships out. Otherwise they will be completely destroyed, you know? Um, so, and, and anything that is shielded from that to some extent, uh, is deep underground and buried and, uh, almost as if it is the underworld um things are dead is all that's moving down there you know the the dead exist in that space and they uh, are trying to find a way to return to the land of the living and you know people like uh, ben and ray have to descend there to to defeat them and to hold them back um and keep them in that dead place. So no, it's a great place. Um, and I, I think it's fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of impressed that, that it made it to one of your favorite planets of the sequel trilogy. It's one of my favorite planets in general. I'll be honest. I, that, I, I love it. The more, I, the more I watch that movie, the more I want it to know more about it too. So that, that's yeah. fair enough. There, there's definitely a history. Yeah. On exit. Uh, well, and you only see glimpses of it. Right. Right. Well, as you said, it is a place that's dead and gone. Oh, good old Justin Timberlake. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sorry. I just, as soon as you said that, I was like queuing that song up. I'm like, oh boy, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah, God. I'm so lucky. Their podcast. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, no, Exegol is just, it's so cool. It's such a cool place. Um, yeah. No, I, I like it. And I, I've honestly never thought about Exegol's too much uh, until we, we, for you know, doing this podcast, so um, I really enjoy kind of getting to to dig into it a little bit and really kind of explore it because yeah, it is a fascinating place. It's a it's a bizarre, uh, unusual, mysterious location, um, and and it's very it is very fascinating. Yeah, um, and interesting that it's in the unknown regions, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, it's because most of most of what the Sith has been have been doing so far have been right smack dab under our very nose in the heart of things. Yeah. This yeah. is this is way out there. Yeah. Right. And we've we've had what two two other planets and um I guess one is now Legends Canon, one is the official canon, but Moraban and Korriban, is that correct about like the original Sith planets that we've gotten in the past? Do you remember? Is that yes. am I right about yes. that? Yes. 
Um, uh, Corban was the the Legends One Morband is what we got in the Clone Wars. Okay, so um, this uh, yeah Morband was sort of the birthplace of the Sith, from what I understand, and Exegol is the the throne world of the Sith. I think is what they got called it. it in, okay, in the Rise of Skywalker. Cool. Cool, so, and it would make sense, right? That where they arose from, and obviously were eradicated from after the you know losing the war to the Jedi, and Darth Bane starts his rule of two. In a lot of ways, it makes sense that they would go to a place in the unknown regions to make it their throne world and bide their time. So, mm-hmm. um, Exegol is the perfect analogy for Palpatine. It's a place that's willing to hide for as long as it takes. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, and it is dead and and broken inside. Yeah, so. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but then we go to a place that is not dead and broken. No, not in the least. Good old Asian Kloss. Indeed. Uh, A.K.A. Yavin 4 2.0. Yes. To me, a, <laughs> a less humid uh, Yavin 4, although I'm sure it's just as humid. Um, it looks less humid. I will, it does, I will yeah. definitely agree with you on that. <laughs> um, but right, like, you know, it, it is neat, though, that these are the, the kind of the opening planets of the story. So we go from a very cold, dead planet to a very lively uh, jungle planet like Asian Kloss. And it's, you know, it's this place that just teems with the living force, I would imagine. It's full of life. We we learn now through, again, ancillary material, but this is the place where Luke first started teaching Leia the ways of the force, right? He found something special here. Um, and at this point in the story, right, we... T- you know, in Force Awakens, we had Dakar, which was taken from them. So they're in search of a new home. This becomes the Resistance's new home. And just like this planet is teeming with life, that life will infuse the Resistance to bring a richer life into the rest of the galaxy. And, and I love Asian Claws because it's in the same, it's in the same category of, of organic life-giving planets like Naboo, Yavin, and Endor. Um, yeah. Right? It, it kind of continues that perpetuation in the star Wars galaxy of these kind of jungle forest planets are are places that really do bring life to the galaxy. Yeah, it does. And it not only does it bring life to the galaxy, but it, but it safeguards life um, that is trying to hide there. So, you know, we, we, we've got, you know, Yavin, the rebel Alliance is hiding there. They've been there long enough to really establish a well equipped, well operating, you know, rebel base there you know it's been there for a while and it is probably their headquarters for most of what they're doing um and then of course endor is is where the the final battle against the galactic empire in the films is launched from it is the the life that is there safeguards the rebels and provides allies to them uh in order to Uh, defeat the empire naboo is a beautiful lush verdant planet uh that you know gives us uh, a not only a a a place for life to come from but also a a a culture that um enjoys the beauty and arts and things like that you know the the good things that the galaxy was uh before it was all taken away and now once again we've got agent Kloss, uh agent Kloss, which is a another life giving planet uh you know which it's always funny to to find you know starships and things like that hiding among the trees but on the other hand it's star wars so it doesn't seem too out of place so <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, it it is it is a place that uh they feel safe a place that they 
uh, are are comfortable with and a place that is uh, safeguarding the the resistance uh, before the final assault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we move on then to another desert planet, Pisana. I love Pisana. Um, and the thing I like about Pisana in the story itself, like I said, it's another desert planet. But what's so neat is on this desert planet, there's a sacred ritual taking place. So, again, like kind of a, a point I made when we were talking about Jakku Right. Desert planets, there are something special about them in Star Wars. So now, again, we kind of have this meta commentary that on this particular desert, they're celebrating. There's something ritualistic going on here. So it's, again, just a reminder that in Star Wars, deserts are more than just barren places. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, again, from an outside perspective, Pisana tells us that there's a sanctity to deserts within the story of Star Wars. Um, And Pisana is this place um, of, of celebration, but also of danger. Um, it's a planet that also attempts to swallow our heroes. Um, but what's interesting here is they, they overcome that power of death because of the bonds of friendship. Right. Um, so, um, Pasana is a place that again, we see it celebrating a ritual of some sort of something that's life giving. It's celebrating life. And, that is celebrated through a big community. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a big celebration. It's about people. And we mm-hmm. see our heroes because of their bonds overcoming all the obstacles that they, they are faced with there. Um, but yeah. what do you, I not, mean, what is it about Pisana that really, that you think really works? Yeah. Well, and not only that, but not only what you've just said, and I'll get back to that in a moment, but it also provides the answer and the mm. to their next quest it it you know it gives them um the ship for i'm blanking on his name um uh, um oh ochi of bastoon yeah ochi of bastoon thank you i was like it begins with an o it begins with an o um yeah ochi of bastoon it, it's got ochi's ship and they they find his dagger that you know is the key to to locating uh the the map that they're looking for so uh it, it provides answers in addition to having this, this really, what I really like about Pasana is it really living in a desert. It really showcases that interesting balance in a desert that is full of life and danger, you know, because there is a lot of life out here in, 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 in that actual desert. I live in a desert. And if you're anybody who doesn't know, um, there is a ton of life out here, but, half of the life out here could kill you if you're not <laughs> careful with it. So, um, and that really kind of is that, that balance. It, it, it walks a very delicate balance in a, da- in a desert and Pasana is that, you know, in many respects, mm-hmm. it is life giving and joyous and, you know, community because you have to rely on each other when you're out in a desert. Um, but it also provides that danger and that, barrenness that you know causes people concern and and despair but if you look hard enough in the sands in the the desert in the 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 barrenness out there you'll find some answers so it is it there is a lot of i think homages to native cultures native american cultures and other uh uh desert uh Native desert um, nomadic cultures, yeah. uh, Bedouins. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, out there uh, in the world, um, 
that are, are really represented here and they they do share different very similar kinds of of, of cultural ideas um, and that I think that is really well implied um, on Pasana here so and uh, to be honest I still the piece of music I want so bad from from the rise of Skywalker is the, the song that the, uh, the Pasana, the, the Aki Aki are singing at their festival. I want that music so badly, uh, but it's not been released anywhere as far as I know, sadly. Uh, um, somebody had been, my friend had sent it to me. I, I oh, can't find it now, but somebody has been working on like ripping the music directly out of the movie and making like a more complete soundtrack for it. And this is on there and it's so good. <laughs> um, and I think, and it was written by Lynn Manuel Miranda, um, yep. which, which uh, he also which... wrote Jabba flow for, um, force awakens. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's great. I, I just, Obviously, I don't live in a desert, so I love that perspective you just brought to it, Jason, that the desert is a place teeming with life, but also quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of neat that Pistana, in a way, is kind of the it, it is kind of hunkered into the middle of the planets of this movie. And, mm-hmm. and it does do this great job of being the balancing act that that life is something wonderful to be celebrated. But often you have to celebrate it in face of the danger that exists in the world, right? There are dangerous yeah. things that exist in the world. Nothing you can do about it. I mean, we're living, we're still living in the midst of a pandemic, right? The world is a dangerous place. Every time we go outside, you take a small risk of possibly getting sick, but you know, you have to pick and choose or what are the things that are, that are worth doing right now, right? Like folks, yeah. you know, I, I had a cousin who had to cancel a wedding this summer, but I have other friends who are still going to get married in a couple of weeks, but it's, you know, severely changed the plans of the wedding. Right. So you, you have to pick and choose like how best to live safely and celebrate mm-hmm. that life is still goes on. Right. Um, yeah, it does. And and that is the thing is, you know, in, especially if you're, you're going to live in a desert um, in the fashion that the Akiaki are, you have to make the time to celebrate because otherwise it's just survival. Um, and that's, you know, just surviving is never uh, a good way to live. You have to be right. able to enjoy life and find the joy and the celebration in everything. Um, the desert is a great kind of backdrop for all that, in yeah. my opinion. So, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, I love Pasana. Pasana is one of my favorite planets in, in uh, you know, live action Star Wars because it is a very accurate representation of my own desert um, in many respects. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Um, are we on to Kajimi? We are Is on to Kajimi. I ran some bad luck on Kajimi. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's – I say it's a dark and cold world. But then again, we only were there at night. So I guess it's unfair to maybe call it dark. I'm sure there's daylight sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but Kajimi is though. I mean, but for the purpose of the story, we're only given it at night, which once again <laughs> is there's something um, – there's something hidden here. There's a hidden agenda here and there's something hidden here about Poe's past, right? Um, mm-hmm. We are introduced on Kajimi to a world that lives in the shadows. That's just trying to survive. This is not a new element to star Wars, right? This is the Han Solo characters. This is the shadows of the empire. Um, Kajimi are the folks that are just trying to survive that are just trying to get by. And they do that by living within the shadows. And that's what Kajimi is. But the thing is, is, even things that exist in the shadows have to be brought to the light. Um, and they're kind of forced into the light by the first order. Um, but then they're, they're, 
you know, even more so by our heroes being there. They bring their light to this place. Um, and what I think is interesting about Kajimi too is Kajimi is kind of in the middle of the movie. Um, I will say the one thing that bugs me a little bit about Rise of Skywalker is it doesn't really have the typical three-act structure like most Star Wars movies. And, and I don't even know that Last Jedi does either, to be fair. Um, yeah, I think it's easier to argue how it works for Last Jedi than it does for Rise of Skywalker. Um, but be that as it may, Kajimi is this kind of freezing point for our, our heroes. They have to, once again, go they're, – they're sidetracked here. Like it, It's kind of like their journey is frozen in place for a brief second. Um, uh, but because they go there, they kind of have to, you know, things that exist in the shadows are going to have to be brought to light. Yeah. And it is shrouded in cloud and fog um, and, and swirling snow. It, it is a very shrouded and, and concealed place where, you know, um, where underworld things happen, you know, the, the underworld thrives just below the the tyranny of the first order here on Kajimi and uh, that is you know it's where you know we meet Zori Bliss and Babu Frick and everything like that you know it oh it, Babu Frick he's one of my oldest friends one of my oldest friends yes <laughs> um, but yeah <laughs> I love that so much I do too. Um, <laughs> but it is it is like you said shrouded in this this mystery this 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 veil of secrecy in many respects. Um, and we don't really kind of get to look past it at all. It still maintains it even when it gets under attack, you know, it, it doesn't, it does not reveal any of its secrets. Its secrets have to escape if they're able to get out. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, should we light speed skip to, to, uh, another planet? We should, uh, you know, that, that, you know, be careful. You don't want to wreck the ship doing that. Um, well, Ray's not here, is she? That's true. She's not. So we're yeah. going to do it anyways, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we are off to Kef Beer, um, which is a planet in the Endor system. Mm-hmm. Um, the nine moons of Endor. Yes. Uh, and this is a kind of an oceanic world. Um, but a, a very unruly and tumultuous oceanic world, which somewhat similar to what was going on, I would say, with kind of the the ocean life in um, Octo for, for Last Jedi. The, you know, the very unruly waters of Kefbir definitely, I think, are obviously just a, a, physic- or a planetary manifestation of Rey's continued inner turmoil at this point in the story, right? If she's really struggling to just deal with the answers and, and make some peace with the answers. The, you know, the, the planet kind of shows that it, you know, when they, when they eventually, the ground is a pretty safe place. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's something very tumultuous going on here. Um, but Kefir also represents a, a bit of a safe haven as well. Um, it's become the home for a group of people who are looking to recreate themselves. Um, so there is something, uh, I would say an element of rebirth to Kefbeer. And I think we really get that with the fact that this is where um, Kylo and Ray have their last fight together, you know, which again is, is I think very purposefully mirrored on the Mustafar duel um, rather than being on a, a molten hell like planet. This is the rivers of baptism, the, the, the planet of rebirth. Um, it reshapes Ray and what she wants to do with the answers she's uncovered 
And it's the place where Ben Solo returns. He he rises out of those waters as a new person. He's reborn. Um, so whereas Mustafar tore apart the central relationship of of the prequels of Anakin and Obi-Wan, here we see the kind of um, uh, uh, reconciliation of Ben and Ray in the waters of Kefbir. Yeah, and... To just give a, a slightly different uh, look at the planet um, away from the ocean, the land is is definitely a, a uh, it, it's almost like an agricultural looking place. You know, it looks like it could support, uh, you know, farms and crops and mm. things that grow um, and support life. So, you know, yes, well, well, everything you said about the oceans uh, is absolutely true. The the land I think is uh, also very key here as well because it does uh, provide uh, a sort of uh, what's the word I want to look for a, a, a something that will support what what is going forward. It it, it provides the the nourishment the um, you know for ideas the uh, nourishment for the the souls of Ben and Ray as they they go through this baptism and uh provides uh, additional uh produce so to speak for the <laughs> resistance in the form of uh Janna and the 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 stormtroopers that that left um and and you know the the relationship they get to form with with Finn so it it it's it produces more than uh, than it looks like it should, uh, and it, it really is a place that is a, a jumping off point uh, that provides the the fuel for the next steps uh, to to set things right. Um, yeah, moving forward. So, yeah. Um. Well, we're we're starting to to make our way back around here. Um, as the story starts to wind down, but uh, Ray goes back to Octo very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what brought her to Octo and Force Awakens, this hope for answers and for getting the wisdom of the generations of Jedi that came before, um, she didn't get that in Last Jedi, but she gets that now, right? She goes there thinking she's doing the right thing. She's going to flee. The, um, you know, once again, Octo becomes this, uh, going with the the beautiful analogy you gave, Jason, it's very much about going to the island. It's about isolating. She goes there with the purpose of isolating herself. But Luke shows up and says, no, 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 this isn't where you're supposed to be. Um, and she goes there with her truth and she has, and she just, she under, she confronts it. She deals with it and moves on. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it really is sort of a stopping off point to realize what her her next step is, because she is turning into Luke Skywalker in this moment. She's turning into to what he realizes has been a mistake. You know, uh, by the you know by the time he he has this conversation with Yoda in the Last Jedi, he realizes what he did was a mistake. That uh, it wasn't. 
the right course of action, at least not in the long term that he ended up living it out as. And she is going back there, you know, sort of a return to the past. And her past is is standing there waiting for her and saying, no, you mm. don't come back. Yeah. You move forward. Uh, something, so, something I was just thinking of going off of, I loved how you t- referred to it in Last Jedi as a mausoleum, right? It mm-hmm. was the place that collects all this stuff, but it, it puts it there just for no purpose, really. But Ray goes back. You know, a thousand generations live in you now, Ray, but this is your fight, right? She goes there. She goes back to this place that she thinks of as a place that she's going to be able to isolate herself, to cut herself off. Meets Luke there, who in a way treated it like a mausoleum, but he's saying, no, no, no. Everything that this place represents, that lives in you now. It has a physical manifestation in your heart, in your spirit. Take Mm -hmm. that into the world. It needs you. Um, So... Um, again, like Octo itself in a weird way in the sequel trilogy gets its own story arc, right? It's the land of promise that doesn't give you what you want and then does, <laughs> you know, right. um, it fulfills its purpose in, in rise of Skywalker in a, in a yeah. certain way. Um, I wish we could have seen some caretakers, but that's all right. <laughs> she wasn't there very long. Um, yeah. Um, well, then just, you know, we, uh, I'm sorry. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the, the trip back to Octo? Not really. Okay. Not really. Um, We can move forward. Yeah. So, you know, we'll go back to Exegol one more time. Um, And ultimately, this is the forces of light. And the only thing I want to say, because I don't think we've said a lot about Exegol, but I think what's worth noting is, is when we finally leave Exegol at the end of the movie, we see it in daylight. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's still a very just barren ground from the looks of things, but at least there's sunlight now um, and you need sunlight to have life. So maybe now there's the promise that life could come, that life could spring out of this, what seems to be dead ground. Um, and it's because of the forces of, of love to use, you know, Star Wars language. I mean, the, the love of these characters for one another and for the galaxy at large brings that literal light to this always what seemed to be dead and dark planet. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It is a good point, and and, and you're right. It it is. It's still barren and desolate, but there's light, and that light provides hope, and tells us that you know things are going to be okay. Yeah. So, you know, even in this dark place, there is now light, yeah. and that is no small feat. Yeah. So the final place we go in the sequel trilogy and in the Skywalker saga is the most sacred planet in Star Wars, which is Tatooine, the birthplace of the Skywalkers. Yep. And I kind of... The first planet we saw in Star Wars. Yeah. We go back. First planet we saw in Star Wars and the most important planet in Star Wars. Um, Mm. And I know there are people that didn't like that we went back here um, and, and there's a lot of great reasons that they have, but... I, for one, just, I love that we go back here. Um, and I kind of want to, you know, I kind of want you to say a bit more about what you said at the start here with how, you know, Jack who is, it's not where the Skywalkers are from and that's not where, yeah. Yeah, but this has to do with Ray. Once again, Ray's yes. destiny is to be a Skywalker. Um, and so she ends up on Tatooine 
And yeah. this is, my two senses is ultimately we go back there. Yes, it does pay homage to a fan base that has existed for 40 years. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, no. But I think within the story itself. So just looking at it from the story level, she goes back there to, parry, to bury the past. She goes there with this level of, of uh, almost like a sacred duty. It's a pilgrimage, like you said, right? And she yeah. takes the, the wonder of what she was given from her time with Luke and Leia. She goes back to the place that started it all, and she buries the past. And it's the only time in Tat- on Tatooine that we see the rising suns. Both Luke's vision um, in uh, A New Hope and the same with the closing shot in Rise of, or excuse me, Revenge of the Sith, they're both sunsets. But in Rise of Skywalker, and it has been confirmed that that is indeed a sunrise. This is something new. Um, so we've gone here to say goodbye to the past because something new has arisen. It is a new type of Skywalker and Ray. So I love it. But I really, you know, I want to hear what you think, though. Uh, I love that point you made about Jakku and Tatooine. Yeah, no, it, Jakku is, is, you know, there's a reason why she starts on Jakku because Tatooine is where the Skywalkers are from. Um, and she's not a Skywalker yet, um, but now she is. And so when you join a family or, or something of that kind, you go back and you pay homage to, you know, and pay respect. It, it, it's like going back to visit the grandparents back home where you're from. You know, you, you take, you, you know, you marry somebody who's part of a, you know, has a different family, different, you know, uh, culture or different uh, set of, of, of how they grew up. And you go back and you, you say hello. You you learn about it. You you uh, speak to the people that, that lived it and uh, established where they came from. And and that is what Ray does is she goes back there. Uh, to to pay homage to to find where this all began, and to put Luke and Leia is in, in a sense to rest, um, because where else are they going to go? They were born on an asteroid, uh, mm-hmm. Polis Massa. Um, their mother um, was from Naboo, but they never met her. Leia grew up on a planet that no longer exists. Luke grew up here on Tatooine. Their father is from Tatooine. You can't bury Luke or Leia at this point because they're part of the Force. So she takes their sabers. And this is, in a sense, kind of like her giving them a farewell. Mm -hmm. Instead of a big state funeral like they had for Padme, and I'm sure they had a, a, a funeral... Um, celebration for Leia on Agent Kloss, uh with the Resistance. Leia goes to give her own, or not Leia, uh, Ray goes to give her own sort of uh, pay her own respects to her masters. This is as much about her teachers as it is about her new family. Um, so she goes to put her teachers to rest and to walk into the the name and the family that they provided for her and to take that and move forward. Um, and that is why she is there. This is not 
and this is all her decision. Luke and Leia didn't ask her to become a Skywalker. They didn't say, hey, we want you to be part of this this family. They wanted her to be part of their family, but they didn't ask her to take their name. That was something she chose to do mm-hmm. because she believed not only in the teachings and the uh, the abilities that they helped, that the two of them helped her develop, but she believes and feels so strongly a part of the family they helped to create around her that she wants to continue what is now a dead family line because Ben is dead. Mm -hmm. Han is dead. Leia is dead. Luke is dead. He never had kids. The family line is dead and Shmi is buried there. There's no more Skywalkers of this line until she steps out of that moisture farm and decides to become a Skywalker. Yeah. It's a new Skywalker line. Yeah. But it's connected to the, the old, the old one. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Skywalkers come from Tatooine at least, at least in star Wars, at least in this, you know, the, the live action star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where this Skywalker is going to come from. Yes. Right? She's a new person and she chooses who she gets to be. Um, yeah. and whether you like that choice or not is obviously fine. But I, I for one, love this, love this choice, both for Ray as a character, but also again, and it just, you know, I, I watched the movie again today and just, the, you know, the way she looks at, you know, that dining table that, you know, obviously Luke famously sat at with his aunt and uncle, but also the one where yeah. Anakin learns the terrible news about his mother. The way Ray just looks at it, the, that brief shot is like there is this look of reverence. So, again, this is very much a pilgrimage experience. Um, yeah. Tatooine is the birthplace of this story. Um, and the whole point of episode nine was to say the Skywalker story is over. So we've come here to bury it and to give rise to a new type of Skywalker. Um, so yeah. to me, it's very fitting that this is where the story ends. Um, it, it's a great it's a great ending for the saga as a whole. But I, in my opinion, uh, it is also a perfect new beginning for Ray. Yeah. Yeah. Because the journey that she started on uh, in R- The Force Awakens is done. Right. She's completed that journey. Right. Now it's time for the next one. Yep. Exactly. And, and this is where that begins. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. There is our planetary tour of the sequel trilogy. Yes. I My love goodness. it. That was I'm fun. So glad, I'm so glad we came back to do this, this type of episode for, for the sequel trilogy. I, I forgot how much fun this, this episode style was. Oh my gosh. So. This was a blast. I loved it. Yes. Um, so there you go. You know, as always, uh, we welcome any of your thoughts and insights on the planets of star Wars and things that you thought we might have missed in, in, in this recap. Um, that you felt like is, is worth mentioning. Um, but that being said, uh, um, also quick, quick reminder, I forgot to say this top of the show, obviously we'll continue with our, a new hope radio drama at the end of the episode. So if you want to continue on with that story, we're going to be in episode five of the new hope radio drama Jedi. That was Jedi to be, um, 
great episode. Um, so obviously stick around uh, at the end of the show if you want to continue on that journey. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had my buddy Greg on here and he gave us kind of a new way to think of matchups. Um, and so we've got a new style of matchup for you. Um, so we are going to pit two wonderful Sith planets against one another and you get to pick which is your favorite Sith planet in the showdown between Mustafar and Exegol. Yes, yes. Which delightfully evil planet is your favorite? Is it the the fire and brimstone uh, of Mustafar, or is it the cold chaos of Exegol? So, I love it. I love it that we're we're doing this. So, yes, which is your favorite <laughs> Sith world? Mustafar or Exegol? And Carl, if people want to weigh in on this matchup or anything that we've talked about in this episode or anything else involving Star Wars, uh, where can they do that? Uh, we are on Twitter at Wampa's Lair. Um, certainly feel free if you've got an Instagram, start following us on Instagram, participate and play along there. I'm having so much fun with playing around with our, our Wampa's Lair Instagram. It's just the underscore Wampa's Lair. Um, we have Facebook, Wampa's Lair Podcast. And you can always email us at Wampa's Lair Podcast at gmail.com. Indeed. Uh, you got anything else, Carl, before we close down this uh, tour of the galaxy? Oh my gosh, that was a blast. Yeah, I, I had so much fun. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of the Wampa's Lair podcast. This has been episode number 394, Planets of the Sequel Trilogy. For Carl, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampa's Lair. Episode 5, Jedi That Was, Jedi To Be. time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there came a time of revolution when rebels united to challenge a tyrannical empire. In the rebellion's most desperate crisis, the fate of the entire rebel alliance rested with the astro-droid R2-D2, whose memory banks held secret plans critical to the struggle against the empire. At the edge of the western dune sea on the desert planet of Tatooine is the moisture farm of Owen Lars. Here, R2-D2 and his interpreter counterpart C-3PO have been brought following their purchase by Owen and his young nephew, Luke Skywalker. Once again, R2 has escaped to deliver his message to the mysterious Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ignorant of his mission, Luke and C-3PO must try to recover him 
before he comes to harm in the hostile wasteland scorched by Tatooine's binary suns. Master Luke, is that you? Shh! If my uncle finds out our two got away, he'll skin me alive. Oh, well, I am fully prepared, sir. I hooked myself up to the charging unit last night. Good. I wish I hadn't banged up my skyhopper at Beggar's Canyon. It's going to be a lot tougher to track down our two in the land speed. Shall I activate the ground level door, sir? No, no. I want to wake my uncle up. The main power is still shut down for the night. I don't dare turn it back on. Oh, I see. The need for stealth. Yeah, right. I'll raise the door manually. You push the speeder through. It'll flow along pretty easily on this repulsor field. Yes, sir. Okay. The door's up just high enough. Come on, 3PO. Push! I, I, I must say, I, I agree with your precautions, sir. Your uncle seems rather, well, irascible. <laughs> 3PO, my uncle hates spending money. He was against buying you and R2-D2 from the Jawas in the first place. Oh. If he finds out that R2's run off, well, hop in. Oh, Master Luke, if I might suggest, I could take the controls, leaving you free to scan the terrain for tracks. Piloting ground effect vehicles like your land speeder is one of my secondary functions. Good idea. Let's go. Careful, 3PO. You have to use a light touch on her. Yes, sir. I see. This vehicle's steering response is excellent. I presume you maintain it yourself, sir. That's right. I like to make sure things work right. Uh, the night winds probably blew away the marks of R2's treads, but I figure he's headed towards whatever he was looking for when you two got captured by those Jawas. Our escape pod landed somewhere over that way. R2 seems obsessed with the area behind those mesas. Maybe we can pick him up on the scanner. If you're right, he's headed straight for the Junlin Waste. I must say, Master Luke, this Tatooine does seem a desolate place. I simply cannot understand what drew Bartu out here. He kept repeating that nonsense about his mission and secret plans, and this Obi-Wan Kenobi person. Well, there's a Ben Kenobi that lives out this way. My uncle got awfully mad when I mentioned Ben's name at the dinner table last there night. There really is such a person. Oh, yeah. I presumed Artu was in a state of hallucinatory malfunction, sir, completely addled. No, no, Ben's real enough seen him a few times. All the older settlers like my uncle think that Ben is some sort of magician. Listen, if you swing a little left, you'll see an opening in the Mesa wall. You're very good, sir. Oh, yes, I see it on the scan. If I might ask, sir, just what sort of an individual is this Obi-Wan Kenobi? Well, he's real old, for one thing. He travels the Junlin Waste and the Dune Seas on foot. There's nobody else that does that. He doesn't seem to need much from town, either. He's almost never been to Anchorhead. And you have met him, sir? Well, in a way. About five seasons ago. Still no sign of R2. Uh, sir, what is my best choice at this fork? Uh, left. Thank you, sir. It'll take us into the wastes. My friend Wendy and I rode out this way on a dewback once. Pardon me, sir, but that sounds rather rash. <laughs> well, we wanted to get out on our own for a while. No. But we were bored. We wanted to let off a little steam. I feared I wouldn't know anything about that, sir. The dewback threw us off in one of the canyons and ran away. Got pretty bruised up, and then when it got dark, we still hadn't found our way out. Oh, it was kind of spooked. There were a lot of weird sounds, and then we heard a voice off to one side. A voice? And it called my name. It was Ben Kenobi. Somehow Ben found us and guided us back to the farm. He told us a lot about what it was like to live out in the barren lands all along. In fact, it's difficult to conceive of anyone living out here voluntarily. But you know, a funny thing happened. When Ben took us back, 
Uncle Owen got real mad, and not at Wendy and me, but at Ben. You heard Ben off our farm and warned him not to come back. Anyway, Ben was looking at me kind of funny, like, like he wanted to say something. Uncle Owen wouldn't give him the chance. I'm not surprised, Master Duke. Your uncle struck me as a man who could become extremely irate. <laughs> Usually, but that was the weird thing. If I didn't know him better, I'd have said he was scared right then. <laughs> but, but the look of these awful wastes. I suggest we locate Artu and leave at once. Artu couldn't have gotten this far. We must have missed him in the dunes. Well, you had just recharged him, sir. He could have made considerable distance overnight. Uncle Owen won't take this very well. Perhaps it would help if you told him it was all my fault, sir. Hey, that's an idea. He needs you for the moisture harvest, Repio. The worst he'd do is deactivate you for a few days and give you a memory flush. Memory flush? Well, on the other hand, sir, Artu would never have run away if you hadn't removed the restraining bolt. Wait a minute. There's something showing on the scanner dead ahead. Could be him. Hit it, Repio. <laughs> he should be right in front of us Look, somewhere. Sir, there he is. Artu, great. Pull around next to him. Right. R2. Hey, whoa, where do you think you're going? Master Lucas, your rightful owner now, R2. Let's have no more of this Obi-Wan Kenobi gibberish. And don't you talk to me about your secret missions either. You're fortunate that Master Luke doesn't give you back to those Jawas. It's all right. Listen, I gotta get you two back to the South Ridge to work on those evaporators before Uncle Owen checks up if on us. If you don't mind me saying so, sir, I think we should first deactivate this little fugitive. What's wrong with him now? Oh, my. He says there are several creatures of unknown type approaching from the southwest. Sand people. Tuscan raiders. There have been sightings all over the place. Okay, we'd better have a look. Preview, hand me the macro binoculars. Do you think this is all ready? Come on, we'll just take a quick look. R2, you stay here. Watch those rocks, Preview. Might be a little difficult. You can say that again, Master Luke. with the climbing of those rock formations in mind. I know, but from here we should be able to see whatever it was R2 detected. Hand me the macros. Oh, here you are, sir. Keep low. Now, let's see. Do you see anything, sir? Well, there are two banthas down there, all right, but I don't see any Tuscan raiders that are... Wait. There's one. Standing guard. Hey, somebody's blocking no. my... What? Oh, Raider! Defend
So I wasn't wrong. It is Luke Skywalker. What? Well, hello there, little droid. Come here, my friend. Well, don't be afraid. Huh? Oh, don't worry. This young fellow will be all right. Luke? What happened? Now rest easy, son. You've had a busy morning. You're fortunate you're still in one piece. Few are lucky enough to emerge alive from a hand-to-hand -hand contest with a Tuscan raider. Slowly, son. That's quite a clout you were dealt. What made the sand people leave? I imitated the hunting cry of a crate dragon. Their imaginations did the rest and they took to their heels. Tell me, young Luke, what brings you out this far? Uh, this little droid here. R2-D2 here claims to be the property of an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is that a relative of yours? obi one Kenobi. Now there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Well, I think my uncle knew him. Uncle Owen said Obi-Wan was dead. Oh, he's not dead. At least not yet. You know him? Well, of course I know him. He's me. What? And I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan Kenobi since, oh, before you were born. Well, then this little droid does belong to you. Don't seem to remember ever owning I think we'd better get indoors. The sand people are easily startled, but they'll soon be back and in greater numbers. My home isn't far from here. What is it, R2? Oh, no, 3PO! Who's 3PO? It's C-3PO. It's R2-D2's counterpart. When that Tuscan Raider jumped us, 3PO must have been damaged. Well, then let's find him quickly. Every second counts now. 3PO! Oh, here he is, behind the rock. Good. Oh, here's his arm. Torn loose, linkages and all. Help me sit him up, Ben. I'll try his reactivate switch. Here goes. Nothing. Try again. Master Luke, where am I? I must have taken a bad step when that sand person swung at me with his axe thing. Willis, can you stand? We've got to get out of here before they come back. I don't think I can make it. You go on, Master Luke. There's no sense in your risking yourself on my account. I'm done for. <laughs> what kind of talk is that? Come on, we'll help you to your feet. Go. The landspeeder's not far off now. Come on. Now, the sand people are on the move. We'll go to my home. Come. Comparison, your uncle's is rather grand. Sit C-3PO down over there in the corner. Uh, thank Come you, on, C-3PO. Let me see what I can do for you. Here's my toolbox. I don't think the damage is too serious. Thank you, Master Luke. It's automatic disconnects released under the strain of the fall. It should be a simple matter of reattaching the shoulder linkages and activating the self-seagulls. Oh, I don't hope so. Let's see. Yeah. Boy, you know a lot about droid repair for an old... Uh, I mean... For an old hermit? 
Well, I, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, I quite understand. That is part of the Jedi's creed. A Jedi? You were a Jedi Knight? Do you find that so impossible to believe? Well, it's just I've heard so many stories about the Jedi Knights and all the things they did that... Ah, and I suppose I don't very much look the part just now, do I? Well, truth to tell, that's partially by design. But I was one nonetheless, and so was your father. My father? Yes. He and I served together in the Clone Wars. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your Uncle Owen told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals. Thought your father should have stayed here and not gotten involved. I wish I'd known him. Hmm. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy and a cunning warrior. And he was a good friend. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself, uh, which reminds me I have something for you. Sir, if you won't be needing me, I think I'll close down for a while and run through some internal checks. Uh, oh, sure, 3PO, go ahead. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan off on some foolish idealistic crusade like your father did. <laughs> I wanted to give it to you once before, but your uncle ordered me to get off your farm and never return. Right, when you saved Wendy and me. Mm. I remember that. Mm. You seem to know everything about me. Ben, you've... You've been sort of keeping an eye on me, haven't you? Let's simply say that I've kept abreast of your progress. Mm. Yeah, but now about your father's legacy. Well, yeah, what is this? I mean, it looks like some sort of handle. What is it attached to? What you hold is your father's lightsaber... This is the weapon of a Jedi. Now, carefully now, press that control there on the grip. It's a sword. A lightsaber. Its blade is pure energy. Now, take care with it. It will cut through anything it touches. Do you feel how readily it answers your least gesture? It's not as clumsy or random as a blaster. But to use one well is a mark of excellence. Gee, it moves so easily. Almost like it's alive. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. Yeah, perhaps that's enough for now. Ben? Hmm? How did my father die? It's uh, not a story to be told simply, nor briefly. Suffice it to say that there was a young Jedi who was a pupil of mine, perhaps my most brilliant one, until he was seduced by the dark side of the Force and turned to evil. He betrayed your father and murdered him. His name was Darth Vader, and he helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. It's the sort of tragedy that occurs when even the finest of people are seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? The Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. And this Darth Vader... Uh, it is, as I said, a long and complicated account. It will have to wait for another time. 
Ah, yes, R2-D2, my unexpected emissary. Now, let's see if we can't figure out just what brought you here and where you came from. Mm, mm, yes, his control systems are quite conventional. I saw part of a holographic projection, uh, some sort of message he was carrying. I seem to have found it. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I'm unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid that my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the security of the Rebellion into the memory system of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely to Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Who is she? She is the Princess Leia Organa of the Royal House of Alderaan. An Imperial Senator. And unbeknown to the Empire, a leader of the Rebel Alliance. She's grown into a remarkable young woman. She's beautiful. Indeed. Well, Luke, you must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. <laughs> Alderaan? But I'm not going to Alderaan. I'm, I'm, I'm late. I'm in for it as it is. But I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this kind of thing. But I can't get involved. I've got work to do. And it's not like I like the Empire. I hate it, but there's nothing I can do about it right now. And it's such a long way from here. That's your uncle talking. <laughs> oh, my uncle. How am I ever going to explain all this to him? Learn about the Force, Luke. Look... I can take you as far as Anchorhead. You can get a transport there to Mos Eisley Spaceport or wherever you're going. You must do what you feel is right, of course. What I feel is right? Ben, I'd like to help you, to help her. But do you think it's right to run out on Uncle Owen and Peru? They're all the family I've got, and I'm not going to let anything happen to them. And if that's not right, well, I'd rather be wrong. Yes, of course. Sometimes even the best intentions may be contradictory. Perhaps your answer lies with the Force within you. Very well, I shall take you up on your kind offer. I must make my way to Alderaan as quickly as I can. You all right back there, R2? How about you, 3PO? Oh, quite comfortable, thank you, sir. Getting to Anchorhead with the droids would have presented a formidable problem if you hadn't offered me this ride, Luke. I really wish I could do more for you, Ben, but the sooner I get these droids out on the South Ridge working on those evaporators, the less of a skinny I'm going to take from Uncle Owen. Luke, I'm afraid the droids will have to come with me. What? But they cost my uncle nearly everything. Surely you don't think I can leave them behind. You heard that message. Well, this matter is far too vital to risk losing R2-D2, and for security's sake, C-3PO must come along as well. But what will I tell my uncle? I shall leave that to your conscience, son. What's that? What? There, off to the south. Where? Smoke. Something of great size is a fire. I don't see... Oh, yeah, there it is. You've got good eyes. Powers of observation lie with the mind, Luke, not the eyes. 
Yeah, perhaps we should take a look and see what it is. R2, 3PO, hang on. Yes, sir. Jawa Sandcrawler. And look, it's been shot to pieces. There's dead Jawas everywhere. Why, those are the dreadful little creatures that captured Arto and myself. It must have been the Tuscan Raiders. Oh, I've got a very bad feeling about this. We better get out of here. No. Whoever did this is gone, Luke. Sir, Arto informs me he detects no life aboard the Sandcrawler. The poor creatures. Their lives were arduous and meager enough without being ended so brutally. Yeah, it looks like the sand people did this all right. Look, goffy sticks, bantha tracks all over the place. It's just... I don't know, I never heard of them hitting anything as big as a Jawa sand crawler before. They didn't, but we are meant to think they did. These bantha tracks here are side by side, you see. But sand people always ride single file to hide their numbers. These are the same Jawas who sold 3PO and R2 to Uncle Owen. And these blaster fire impact points on the bodies in the sand crawler. Too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Stormtroopers? Hmm. Why would Imperial stormtroopers want to slaughter Jawas unless. The droids. The droids? And if they traced R2 and 3PO here, they may have learned who the Jawas sold them to, and that would lead them back. Home. Wait, Luke. It's too dangerous. Luke! Come back! Luke! Very well. We'll give the Jawas what decent funeral we can. Uh, pardon me for asking, sir, but where is Master Luke going? I, he will come back, won't he? That I cannot tell you. It's tied in with a great many things to be determined now by the Force. Come, let's get this done as quickly as we can. Everything was gutted, burning. I called out for Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, but they didn't answer. Easy, Luke. Easy. There was practically nothing left of them. They were all I had, the only family I've ever known. And when they needed me, I wasn't there. There was nothing you could have done, Luke. If you'd been there, you'd have been killed as well. And the droids would now be in the hands of the Empire. I want to come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. 
I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Luke Skywalker is about to undertake a journey to a distant solar system and a journey of the spirit as well. No matter that an empire is against him, he is moved by vengeance, but he is moved too by the image of a young woman in terrible danger. Luke Skywalker is soon to become a pivotal figure in the galaxy-wide struggle between rebellion and empire. Star Wars, Episode 5 by Brian Daly. Based on characters and situations created by George Lucas. Featured in the cast were Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, and Bernard Barons as Ben Kenobi. The series was directed by John Madden, with sound mixing and post-production by Tom Vigley. Music by John Williams. Sound design for Lucasfilm by Ben Burt. Story editor for the series was Lindsay Smith. Casting and production coordination by Mel Saar. Executive producer was Richard Toskin. Executive producer for Lucasfilm was Carol Teitelman. 